With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin with Ryan Kennedy. And Ryan, we have a lot to talk about in this episode because a lot has happened in the hockey world since our last episode. But first, let's just slow it down. We we got we have time. Tell me what's happened to you since our last podcast, if anything. You know what? I've just really been into uh, playing guitar again lately. Got Ooh. myself an amp uh, not too long ago. So uh, lots of shredding in the family room. That's that's what I've been up to. I always thought you were a drummer, not a guitar player. I am a drummer, but I also play guitar. So the drums are in the basement. Uh, the uh, guitar amp is on the main floor. So I can go either way. I dig it. I, I had a guitar for a while. I was one of those guys. I couldn't get over the hump. I learned quickly. I learned how to play Every rose has its thorn by poison, but I just couldn't get the repetition down. I just couldn't get over that hump. I saw Dune since our last podcast. Oh, how yes. was it? Very good. I'm a big Denny Villeneuve fan. I think I know a lot of people that are like, oh, it's not for me. And I, I think if you were one of those, it's not for me people, then it would not be for you. Mm. It's very, it's very like the scope is big. It's, it's long and slow and contemplative mm. with really cool visuals, but it takes its time, which gotcha. is to me like the essence of good sci-fi. Mm. But it's not for everybody, I'd say. Okay. So there, there are a lot of big stories since our last podcast. Let's start with Jack Eichel because the trade had not happened when we recorded our last show. They returned that trade. So obviously the Vegas Golden Knights, gets the, they get the man they were linked to so many times over the past six months or so. They get Jack Eichel. They get a, a, a pick going their way as well, um, a third-round pick. And the Buffalo Sabres, of course, get the, the best prospect that Vegas had left, Peyton Krebs. They get Alex Took, the right winger, who's still on LTIR. They get a, a couple future picks that are conditional. The main one, if we're talking about the first rounder, if it's not a top 10 pick, it'll be this coming draft. If it is a top 10 pick, it's going to be the draft after. So let's just break it down. You can, If you want to talk Buffalo, Vegas, both, just tell me what you think of the trade in general. And do you like it for both sides? Do you like it for one side? Hmm. I, I do like it for both sides. I think... You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that Vegas got the best player in this deal. Jack Eichel is the type of center that you pretty much always have to draft. It's so rare when they actually get traded. You know, it's like maybe, you know, Joe Thornton, you know, was the perfect example where he ended up winning the MVP when he went from Boston to San Jose. Uh, But you don't see players of this caliber down the middle that often. And so for Vegas, this is a huge coup because... I mean, that was the thing the Golden Knights always lacked was that true number one center. You know, they always had goaltending. They added great defensemen. Um, I mean, they pretty much always had great defensemen. Then they add Alex Petrangelo uh, through free agency. And they've made some deft trades along the way for Mark Stone and Max, Max Pacioretty. But, you know, there was always that piece missing. And they could go pretty far. And obviously in the first season, they surprised everyone and went to the final. But I, I really felt like if you didn't have that number one guy, you were never going to win the cup. So now 
sort of like there are no more excuses. It's just about going out and executing. And I will say, you know, the one sort of interesting thing right now, obviously Eichel has to have the surgery and, you know, from reports, it's going to be this week uh, and then he'll be out, you know, at least three months, could be longer, who knows. What if Vegas doesn't make the playoffs? They're not in a playoff position right now. Now, having said that, it's not the worst thing in the world because Eichel is obviously signed long term. And, you know, a healthy Jack Eichel for 82 games. If this isn't your Stanley Cup year, I think that's fine for Vegas. But you've at least set yourself up where next year, the year after that, you are probably the favorite in the NHL now. For Buffalo, I think it was a pretty good return. You know, obviously the draft picks are nice. Peyton Krebs, uh, and this is something I wrote about the day of the trade, you know, he is a center. Uh, he, he's also played some wing. But I could see him being a, a pretty solid number two center down the road. Uh, very sort of feisty, nasty to play against guy, but also a, a pretty high-end uh, playmaker. So, you know, if you're a Sabres fan, you say, okay, if everything breaks our way, maybe Dylan Cousins can be that big number one center we need. Uh, you know, he's he's not that yet, but maybe in a couple of years he can be that. Maybe Peyton Krebs slots in at, at number two. You know, you got some really nice wingers coming up, whether it's Jack Quinn or J.J. Pateka, um, you know, plus the sort of guys you already have, including Alex Tuck, who, who was just added. I, I think the you know, what Kevin Adams got was was pretty good. You know, for these types of deals, it's always really difficult to get fair value. Um, but I thought he did a pretty good job. Yeah, I think I'm with you. And I think that we should give uh, Kevin Adams a little more credit. I think I think he deserves a little more credit for the return he got on this trade. When you factor in, there wasn't a ton of leverage. Mm-hmm. And especially as we got deeper into the season, the risk of Eichel not being back in time got greater. And it's still not a guarantee. They're saying three-month recovery timeline. So maybe you get Jack Eichel back, but it's not a guarantee. And like you said, we don't know the Vegas for sure makes the playoffs. So you might be waiting till next season to get the true Jack Eichel. So you factor that in. You factor in the idea that the Sabres, they said they did not want to retain any of that $10 million salary. That also limits right. your options to a certain point as well and looking at that and looking at the uncertainty about the surgery as we said before it's unprecedented from an nhl level right that we haven't seen anyone get this disc replacement mm-hmm. we don't know 100 percent that it's going to be a successful surgery i think the golden knights and their doctors they took a look and they, they're confident we can't say for, for certain so you factor in all those things and you got a first round pick you got peyton krebs who like you said i think has potential maybe it's going to be more of a top six guy somewhere in there than a guaranteed number one center but it was still vegas's best prospect future watch last year our scouting panel which is made up of current active members of nhl front offices scouts they put him as the number 18th prospect among all players in the league that are that were already drafted affiliated with teams at the time so it's no slouch there it's a, it's a legitimate prospect and alex took to me was the kind of the epitome of the, the level of player you're going to need as a throw one of that type of deal. A legitimate, bona fide NHL player who's not devoid of upside, in my opinion. This is still a first-round talent, right? Yep. And the Wild picked him. Uh, I guess it was what draft was it now. It's been a while now since he was drafted. I forget, I forget which year it was. But he has legitimate potential as a power forward. He also brings something different if you're looking at what the Sabres are building. Obviously, there's potential up the middle with Cousins. Casey Middlestad is still there right now, and he's still... I think finding some confidence with Don Granado, at least especially last year, but you need to also fortify those wings and took, obviously he's a unique specimen, right? Net front, big, strong guy. Mm-hmm. And he still has a lot of prime years left in my opinion too. So I don't think that's a horrible return. You're building around own power and Rasmus Dahlin on the blue line. I'm starting to see it. 
a little yeah. bit for Buffalo. And it hurts to lose Eichel, and maybe they did lose the best player in the deal. But when you reach the point that the point at which you know he's not playing for you again, you have to get something. And I, I don't think this is Wayne Primo, Brad Stewart, and Marco Sturm level right, back. Right, right, right. So I think it's an okay return. And from Vegas's perspective, it's interesting. I wrote about it online. Obviously, Ryan covered the Buffalo angle of the trade. I covered the Vegas angle. And what I said was, will we remember this trade as the cup clincher? And it's funny. We said in our yearbook, we picked the Vegas Golden Knights to win the Stanley Cup in our yearbook. That was the consensus pick. And part of our argument was, we think Vegas is going to go and get a center like Jack Eichel. And they did. Um, But if you look at it, you have to wonder if they flew too close to the sun. Because they have mortgaged so many pieces, not just future, but present pieces, right? So I went through their drafts. This is the history of their first round picks. 2017, Cody Glass traded for Nolan Patrick. 2017, Nick Suzuki traded for Max Pacioretty. 2017, Eric Branstrom traded for Mark Stone. 2018 pick traded in a trade in a deal for Thomas Tatar. 2019, Peyton Krebs traded for Jack Eichel. 2020, Brendan Brisson and Zachary Dean, 2021. Those picks have been kept, but they were at the bottom of the first round. The 2022 pick also traded in the Jack Eichel deal, or maybe it's going to be the 2023. So the majority of your all-time first-round picks have been traded away. You have pretty much nothing left in terms of high-end prospects in your uh, your cupboard. I think Jack Dugan is the highest uh, guy left. And Mm -hmm. in our Future Watch rankings last year, I think he was like 76th overall. And it's not just about the futures. It's the guys that have been, and I put in the article, thrown overboard. Nate Schmidt and Paul Stasny, Alex Took, Marc-Andre Fleury. These were all guys that were sacrificed, whether it was to clear space. So in the the case of Schmidt and Stasny, it was clearing space for Pietrangelo. For Fleury, it was sort of making room, I guess, for an eventual Eichel trade to clear that cap space. So you've you've mortgaged a lot of important pieces of that core Mm. that went to the final in 2018. And... You have to wonder, is the team too top-heavy? Especially when you're factoring in cap compliance, right? So Max Pacioretty, Mark Stone, Jack Eichel, LTIR, they're all going to come back. Vegas is going to be way over the cap. (laughs) So you also have to factor in, there are other bodies are going to get thrown overboard, whether it's Riley Smith or Evgeny Dodano, we don't know yet who it's going to be, Braden McNabb, other pieces are going to go, and what's going to be left and especially because you've also mortgaged your top prospects, it's not like you can say, well, next man up. We made the trade. It's okay. We're going to call up some kids mm. to fill in that depth because there is no depth right now in Vegas. Mm. And it's a farm system. It's a development program that's still brand new, right? They haven't even had their own farm club for their entire existence. At mm. First, they were sharing. So it's not like it's it's a team like Tampa Bay that has a really long established track record. Okay, we can we can trade or we can lose Yanni Gordon in the expansion draft or we can lose Blake Coleman because we're so good at replacing that depth. Vegas hasn't really established that yet. So so I do worry that they've flown too close to the sun and maybe it's too much. At the same time, I like it. It's fun. Yep. They behave like a fantasy hockey team. If you remember last year when Bill Foley was on this podcast, he sort of talked about uh, pulling out all the stops, I think was the expression he used. And he's all in on that idea of winning in six years. He wants it to happen. So bless you, Vegas, for existing. I'm glad. I don't know if it's the right decision, but I'm glad that there's a team out there in the NHL that's behaving more like an NBA franchise. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, Eichel was the name, powering the rumor mill. He was the coal in the locomotive, Yeah. right? Uh, so, who do you think is out there now, if we're looking at the next person to take the mantle in the trade rumor mill? Who's the big name that we're going to be talking about for the next three months, six months, whatever you want to call it? Okay, so the most obvious name is Phil Kessel in Arizona, but it's so obvious that I almost feel like we don't need to talk about that too much. We know he's a Stanley Cup champion, a, a great playoff scorer. Uh, so that's that's almost a fait accompli, uh, as they say. I'm going to go a different way and say, I wonder 
what the market will be like for Chris Letang in Pittsburgh. Now, obviously, you know, uh, quite the history of injuries and health problems that teams would have to be aware of. But in six games this year, he has six points. And the Penguins are at the bottom of their division. You know, he's going to be a UFA soon. I wonder if this is the type of player who, you know, he does have a modified no trade clause, so he has to give the Penguins a list. Uh, but there, there's some pretty good wiggle room in terms of, uh, you know, a, a number of suitors that he could go to. I wonder if, you know, Pittsburgh looks at this season and says, it's not in the cards for us. And, and granted, you know, I mean, it's early, but I'm talking, you know, in a couple of months when we really start talking about trade deadline and, and who could go. I mean, Chris Letang's still an incredible offensive defenseman. I wonder if he's the kind of guy that, you know, can help the Penguins restock that cupboard uh, with the knowledge that, you know, this, this isn't going to be their year. Assuming, of course, that they can't sort of pull it together and, and make some hay uh, in that division because they are pretty quickly falling by the wayside. Yeah, and it's interesting. Last year, you know, they make the Jeff Carter trade, and I was thinking, okay, this is the Brian Burke side of their decision making. But I was thinking the Ron Hextall side of the decision making is going to take over eventually, and mm. Hextall is extremely conservative, right? So. Maybe that's going to be a shift. If Pittsburgh does make that move, they start rebuilding the prospect cupboard, just like he did in Philadelphia. They start moving toward that next next phase. Mm-hmm. So I have a few different names. If we're looking at sort of obvious rental types, you got to look at, of course, Thomas Hertel in uh, San Jose. If the Sharks slide out of it, they've been a little bit competitive so far, yeah. but I'm, I'm skeptical. Uh, Seattle so far doesn't look like playoff material, so you're going to have to look at Mark Giordano, which is why I thought it was strange that they named him captain. And does Calgary get in? On Jordan or bring him back to that room. Calgary uh, looks like a contender so far. That would yeah. be very interesting. Um, but if we're talking big names, I had written down Latang as well. But why stop there? Let's go with Genny Malkin, baby. Mm. He's in his walk year as well. And it's been rumored for a long time. Is he's, He finally, I don't want to say worn out as welcome. He's, he's royalty in Pittsburgh Hall of Fame. Yeah. One of their top four players in franchise history. But if it's time to move on he's ex- and his contract's expiring once his knee's better and if, if so the good thing is by the time he comes back the penguins will have a better idea of where they're going to sort of shake out in the standings yeah and is that someone you could get a lot for i think you probably could right mm-hmm. given his experience his history of stepping it up in the playoffs uh you also have to look at mark andre fleury in chicago right another goal yeah. in his walk here and i think a team like the edmonton oilers you gotta kick the tires whether you kick the tires on tuka rask or fleury uh, because if you're if you don't want to roll with Mike Smith and Miko Koskinen as your tandem, that to me is the team to watch in terms of the the team uh, that's going to be a contender that's most likely to make an, a midseason trade for a goalie. It's mm. got to be Edmonton, right? Whether it's Corpusalo or Flurry or signing Rask, uh, and then if we're talking deep sleepers, let's stay in Chicago. What about Patrick Kane? Yeah, he's got another year left after this one, so ten and a half million. So it would be a little bit difficult to make it work for cap compliance, mm. but. There's the appeal of him being a two-year rental. Right. And maybe if Chicago has just decided, you know, we have to tear down everything. Like yeah. We have to tear down, obviously, our hierarchy, our front office. We have to maybe change our, our logo. Yeah. We have to just tear down our personnel. Like, they may as well just strip it down to nothing. Sure. Start over, right? So, Patrick Kane, I think, is if you're, if you're kind of playing out the, the big fish. Yeah. Obviously, that's a sleeper name, but it's not likely, but I wouldn't rule it out. Um, sticking with the Blackhawks. So... Since our last episode, they have fired coach Jeremy Carlton. It was a 1-9-2 start, so you knew change was coming. Do you think this was the right move? And do you blame Carlton for what's happened on that team? Or was it more that he didn't really have a chance? 
I certainly don't blame Colleton for what happened this season. I, and again, we talked about this, I think it was the last podcast, that I just felt like Chicago was built wrong. And, you know, I mean, Stan Bowman's gone. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm not going to put it on his successor. But, you know, this was a team, I, I don't think they were ready to contend. And yet they went out and made moves that suggested that they were close, you know, bringing in Seth Jones, bringing in Marc-Andre Fleury. So uh, to me... You know, when they made that shift, it's like, okay, well, Colleton was supposed to be that coach that grew with the team. And then all of a sudden, you pushed the, um, you know, the timeline a lot quicker and you didn't allow him the time to grow as fast. So, you know, now they have an interim coach in Derek King. It To me, it just feels like this is going to be a lost season for the Blackhawks. So I, I think it's probably best that they don't make any major moves on the coaching front this year. Just let things, you know, fall how they may. But this offseason, I think they really have to figure out who they are and what timeline they're on. And, you know, you referenced Patrick Kane. You know, will he still be there in, you know, this season or next season? Uh, you, you know, you have to think about Jonathan Taves' future as well. So, I don't blame Colleton. I, I almost felt like when he was hired, it was very similar to when Detroit hired Jeff Blashill, where to me, it was like when the Red Wings are ready to contend, he's probably not your coach, mm-hmm. um, but he would be perfect for getting them set. He's sort of a table setter. I felt Colleton was probably the same kind of coach where he would get a lot of good experience. Maybe, you know, he catches on with another team, you know, after he leaves Chicago and, and had that great experience himself because, you know, he this is the first time he was an NHL head coach and a very young one at that. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think it was too bad for Colleton because it wasn't on him. But when your record is like that and so much is whirling around, I certainly understand the move. Yeah, for sure. And I think he was just the wrong hire for the wrong time. He was in his early 30s when he was hired, right? I think he was 33 when he was hired. And he had no experience behind an NHL bench, not even as an assistant coach, if I remember correctly. So you're throwing him into a situation. And normally, if you're taking someone who's that green, you mentioned growing with the team, you're, you're putting him in a situation where the team is starting at square one. It's a clean slate. There mm. are no expectations. He's learning with them. But you thrust him into a situation in which the team didn't really know what it wanted to be. And the moment he was hired, it, the Blackhawks were still talking themselves up like they were a playoff team. And I've gone back to this, but it's it's oh, it's relevant in this conversation. But the, the interview I did with Stan Bowman a couple of summers ago, where he talked about trying to appease the old guard and the tension that was there with Seabrook and Keith and Taves and Kane, trying to show them, no, 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 we're not rebuilding. We're re- we've already started. We're retooling. So there was that sense that you didn't want to give up on the idea this team could contend. And what happened was it, it made Chicago rush. And as soon as cap space was freed up, Stan Bowman, boom, reverted to his spending ways, right? And he, yeah. he brought in a bunch of players and we talked about it. And again, it's not hindsight in 2020. We said this at the time. I said I was skeptical that the big moves were going to help the Blackhawks because they were not repairing the defensive problems. They already had good goaltending. And since the start of 2019-20, no team has allowed more shots. No team has allowed more high danger chances. No team has a worse expected goals per 60 at 5-on-5. Five five. They've just been the worst defensive team in hockey. They never really repaired that. And it's hard to blame it on Carlton because he was in charge of a team that just didn't have an identity. Mm. Um, so I understand why he had to go, but I, I don't blame him. So the team you know, obviously wasn't up to satisfaction, especially this year. But again, it's it's the moves that Chicago made that yeah. necessitated this. When you make these big moves, 
sort of trying to send the message, we're, okay, we're ready to contend. We're paying $9.5 million for Seth Jones. We're trading for the reigning Vezina Trophy winner, Marc-Andre Fleury. Well, you cannot start a season 192. Right. You can't just say, no, it's okay. It's part of the rebuild. This ain't no rebuild. This is supposed to be a team that believed it was going to be a contender. I was skeptical, and it turns out they're not a contender. So I feel bad for Carlton. It was the right move in the sense it's what you had to do. Yeah. But I don't believe what happened leading up to this point was his fault. He really just never had a chance to succeed. So the NHLPA, uh, the board, since our last episode, they voted in favor of an independent review uh, to look into how the PA handled the allegations um, that or Kyle Beach's allegations against Brad Aldrich in 2010. So I want to know what you think will come of this. Do you think we will get results? Will something happen to Donald Fear as a result? Executive Director Donald Fear, will he end up being ousted? Or do you think at this point there's not much that's going to be gleaned from the review? Well, I think that, you know, if there is some malfeasance found in this investigation, then the players will move on on Donald Fear. It's interesting because, you know, we've seen this uh, quite a few times with the Players Association. Uh, you know, sometimes it was probably not the right move where they've ousted a leader. Sometimes it certainly was. Um, but they do take action. And I, I think it's, it's, it's not as conservative as the NHL and the Board of Governors in terms of making moves. Um, what will be interesting is to see what the results of the investigation are, because, you know, just from the little bits of information that uh, we've gleaned so far, it, it sounds like Kyle Beach told a doctor uh, within the program and, you know, did that doctor alert anybody else in the union or was this a matter of the doctor thinking, OK, well, this is, you know, something that, you know, should be kept uh, private, which was obviously an error if it was a criminal, uh, you know, situation. Um, did that news get up to Don Fear? If it didn't get up to Don Fear, then I don't think you can oust him. I think what you can do is make sure you have sort of a new set of protocols to deal with this and, and set out and say, okay, you know, whatever program you're in, uh, you know, if you're getting help for problems uh, and you're talking to these doctors, those doctors have, um, you know, a, a duty to report any criminal behavior mm -hmm. to the proper authorities or at least alert, you know, people in the union and say, hey, you might want to speak to this player uh, because there was things in here that probably need to be dealt with at a higher level. So I think we need to wait for more information. But I will say, you know, if the union... Um, you know, gets results from this investigation that would point towards Don Fear being ousted, I think they certainly would make that move because they haven't been afraid to do so mm -hmm. in the past. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, I had a very illuminating conversation yesterday, and you can see it on our website with Sheldon Kennedy, of course, who's the Order of Canada for coming forward in 97 about the assault that he, that he experienced at the hands of Graham James um, and Wayne McNeil. And the two of them are co-founders of a company called Respect Group, and what they do is sort of implement uh, proper training and everything in a, in a given workplace to try and eliminate bullying, harassment, anything that's criminal, whatever it is. They try to help a company deal with and report these problems. And they're big proponents of third-party crisis reporting lines. And Kyle Beach said it as well. The Blackhawks had skin in the game. The NHL probably had skin in the game. So it's hard to have a real third party. And they sort of explained to me the importance of third-party lines. And if you look at it in the context of, let's say, the player assistance program and the doctor, what they explained to me yesterday was that a hotline like a player assistance program that can help you with psychological problems or someone that you need to 
uh, get counseling from. But legally, it's not the same thing as a case management crisis line. So if something's reported, there's no guarantee. The protocol doesn't guarantee that it keeps getting passed up the chain. That's why it can get lost. That's what happened to Kyle Beach as well. There's sort of a diffusion of responsibility. No one knows who's in charge of what, and that's why it disappears. Or as Sheldon Kennedy said to me, it falls through a black hole. If you had a third-party management system in place, then everything is filed and put away in a special um, kind of case file, and you can easily track who is accountable at all times. When you don't have that, which the PA didn't, which the Blackhawks didn't, then you can pin the accountability on leadership because who else is the person that can help the victim in the situation? So based on that, because you didn't have the proper chain of command and case management, I do think that you could have a situation where Don Fear is found liable. Um, and he was he's already spoken pretty apologetically about what happened. So I don't know if he's necessarily out of the woods here. I, I do think then the future... The NHL needs to consider stepping aside and letting third parties take over this. I'm really convinced after talking to uh, Sheldon Kennedy and Wayne McNeil about the importance of it. It's, it totally changes the dynamic and it ensures that these cases aren't just going to disappear, which is so important. But the way things are now, the way things were in 2010, I think that maybe there is responsibility on the leadership of the PA, just as there was on the leadership of the Blackhawks. Well, we knew that Alex Ovechkin was going to get goal number 741 and catch Brett Hull this season. I didn't think it was going to happen uh, in, what was it, November. 12 games. He scored yeah. 11 goals in his first 12 games, which is pretty unbelievable. Ovi's on a mission to catch Wayne Gretzky at 894 goals. Uh, he's ahead of schedule this season. So I think every once in a while it's fun to, to reopen that discussion and just check in on whether we believe Ovechkin is going to catch Wayne Gretzky and become the all-time leading goal scorer in NHL history. So do you think he's going to do it? I do. I think it's a great goal for him to aspire to. I think his surrounding cast is still very good and will continue to be very good for the next uh, couple of seasons. And, you know, the Caps do have some young players coming up that will help as well. And I also think that if you think about Ovi and the power he has in his shot, you know, this is not a guy that relies on speed to create his goals necessarily. I mean, we all know about Ovechkin's office. You know, Gretzky's got his office. Ovi has his office. You know, it doesn't require a lot of uh, quickness to get there. Once you, it, It's just a matter of goalies can't stop the shot. And, you know, other teams have to honor the fact that John Carlson is usually on that point. Uh, so they can't just put a spy on Ovi all the time. So I, I think that's a that, that's a good mark for him that, you know, even as he gets older, um, you know, the skills he has won't necessarily deteriorate uh, the way they have for some other players. And, you know, I mean, he still looks like he's in amazing shape. Mm -hmm nonetheless but yeah I, I think because he has the Stanley Cup ring already he can he can kind of focus on that record and not feel like he's being selfish it's like you you brought Washington its first Stanley Cup title um, let, let's get you that goals record uh, it would be really fun and I, I yeah I think he's on track still mm-hmm it's funny, I remember doing an interview with him at the, it was one of the All-Star Games. I think it was the one that was in Tampa Bay. So was that 2018? It was before they'd won the Cup. It might, it might have been the year they won the Cup. Mm. And I was asking him at the time about the goals record. And uh, it's funny, in the middle of it, some guy burst in and was like, yeah, Ovi, yeah, yeah, in the middle of it. We're like, whoa. Uh, but 
at the time he was like, no, I'm not even thinking about this cup. I want the cup. I want the cup. It's all I want, all I want. And then once he got that bucket list item, it changes the dynamic. And exactly. our buddy Kenny Campbell has taken some heat he did last spring for sort of implying that, hey, are, are Washington, are they becoming a team that's more about getting over the goals record than trying to win? Um, but I, I do think there was something there, and Kenny took a lot of heat for it. But if you look at the way Ovi's behaved to start this season in particular, he's got 60 shots in 12 games. He's shooting the puck five times a game. So that's putting him at, on pace for uh, 410 shots, I believe. Yeah. Wow. And that to me is like vintage Ovi when he was almost, not a rookie, but in his early 20s. That's mm. how much he was shooting the puck back then. So the output is way up. And to me, that makes me wonder if Ovi is like kind of, okay, yeah, let's do I mean, this thing. Let's do this. Why yeah. not? We got our cup. Um, so I'm starting to believe that maybe he's making it more of a priority. Mm. And I did a little math. I, I put it out on Twitter, but I was doing it more for this episode. So if we think, you know, I, I think even if he regresses the rest of the season, he probably gets 30 more goals. He's scoring it much higher. He's scoring at like a 70 goal pace right now or 75. But if you look at the rest of his contract plus the 70 games that are left this year, he's got 398 games left. That's assuming he plays everyone, oh. stays healthy. He has been one of the most remarkably durable players of all time, knock on wood. Um, but let's say he plays every game, 398. If that was the case, he would only have to score at a 31-goal pace for the rest of his contract, which is like, that's pretty reasonable for Ovi. 31-goal yeah. pace would be, like, that That would be, quote-unquote, bad Ovi. That's yeah. like playing for Dale Hunter level right. Ovechkin, right? Remember when Ovi was finished yeah. <laughs> 10 years ago? Quote-unquote finished. Um, so, to me, that leaves wiggle room. 155 goals in 398 games. He, he could regress a little bit. Because right now, regression would be scoring at only a 40-goal pace, right? Mm. And he could miss some games. He could miss 10, 20 games, whatever it is, over the, over the rest of that contract. And there's wiggle room there. So if I do that math, I think he's going to do it. I think he's going to be a 900-goal scorer by the time that wow. contract is up. I'm a believer. I think it's going to happen. Nice. So we're roughly a month into the NHL season. Um, obviously, it's been a season full of surprises off the ice, a lot of them very upsetting. Um, but in a pure hockey context, on the ice, what do you think is the biggest surprise so far this year? Well, you know, I have two. I got a player and a team. Uh, the player is Tyler Bertuzzi, who uh, obviously has been controversial and, and is not allowed to play in Canada right now, but 15 points in 10 games. Like, that blasts away any pace he has ever had in the NHL. That horse medicine is powerful stuff. It's amazing. I was sort of joking. Maybe it's because no defenseman wants to go near him, but uh, you can't argue with the results, and the Red Wings are a lot better with him in the lineup than they are without. I think they're 0 for 3 in Canada this season. Um, but I mean he has been a top line winger and he's been a huge driver for them he's had some really big games but I mean he's one of the top scorers in the NHL I think that's an it's pretty incredible uh, and the team for me is the Calgary Flames which uh, I know they've taken a, a lot of heat no pun intended but the Daryl the Sutter Brad Living plan seems to be working pretty well and I was watching them against the Rangers on the weekend and they're a bit of a machine right now and, you know, you look at that roster and they've they've got some big dudes that I know a lot of analytics people do not like, where it's Eric Branson or Milan Lucic or Nikita Zadorov, but it all works. And I, I wonder, I'm just speculating here, but, you know, Lou Lamorello always talked about an orchestra, about a team being an orchestra. And obviously he put together some pretty great ones in New Jersey. And, and then the Islanders now have been very good. I wonder if that's what they've done in Calgary, where they say, 
Everybody has a role. And if you buy in, we can do some amazing things because we have a great goaltender in Jacob Markstrom. We've got some high-end offensive players in Johnny Gaudreau and now Elias Lindholm. And if everybody else can fall into place, we can do something great. So if, it, if Sean Monahan has to take a depth role, so be it. You know, if Matthew Kachuk is leading, uh, you know, even though he doesn't have the captaincy yet, so be it. You know, if Gabranson and Zadorov just have to be heavy dudes in the back end to keep other teams honest, that's fine. Mm-hmm. And it's working. So I'm, I, I've been pretty amazed that the Flames have been able to sort of go against orthodoxy and have so much success. Okay. And it's funny. I'm reminded of some interviews I did in the summer. And as a disclaimer, I'm a story repeater sometimes. So if you're listening and I've, if I, if I've, I'm telling a story that I've already told in the podcast, send me a message and let me know because I can't keep track sometimes. I just My brain just kind of melts. But I did talk to Sean Monaghan and Andrew Mangiapane in the summer about playing for Daryl Sutter. Because mm-hmm. I was struck by an interview I did with Drew Doughty years before after Sutter was out in L.A. And, D- and Doughty kind of talked about how Sutter could be an intimidating coach who was hard to approach. Like one-on-one, sit down in the office, have a chat. Because he had that aura about him. So I asked Monaghan and Mangiapane about that. And it was interesting. The response, Manjapani's response was like, listen, he's a straight shooter. He's an easy coach to play for because you always know where you stand. If he's yelling at you, then it's to help you. And I'm, I'm not passing judgment one way or another. Like I'm more of a new school person, so I'm not really about the Daryl Sutter style. I'm just passing on what I was told. So mm. I'm just the messenger here. Um, but Manjapani was saying he he liked the simplicity. He found him a very easy coach to play for. And look at the year Manjapani's having so far. And even Sean Monaghan said, you know, there there's more than one way to play hard. You know, I'm not going to be crushing guys in the corner, being a Dustin Brown for him, like in LA, but I'm going to play hard and win battles and be a a hard-nosed player in the Sutter system in my own way. So there does seem to be buy-in there. And uh, I was writing a story about this before the season. That's when I dug into some numbers and I was like, oh man, I didn't see this. Um, This I do think I've said on the show before, but the Flames were 500 under Sutter, but under the hood, they were a top two defensive team in the NHL in terms of allowing chances mm. only Colorado was better from the moment Sutter took over mm-hmm. so the groundwork was there for a flame turnaround so it actually makes sense to me my biggest surprise I'm, I'm going to say Troy Terry in Anaheim it's funny if you if you asked me two or three years ago if I thought Troy Terry was going to be a frontline NHL player I'd say yeah hey world juniors winning goal come on Captain yeah. America yeah exactly he's a really talented player great hands but it wasn't happening for him mm. and at 24 years old to me, I was thinking, you know what? It would have by now. It's not, you know, looking at that that group, Sam Steele, Max Jones, I was thinking that whole generation of Ducks, they kind of whiffed on that group. Yeah. And I didn't expect it to suddenly switch for Terry this year. 11-game point streak, 8 goals in 12 games. He is scoring on 32% of his shots, so that is not going to last. There's some regression coming big time. But he's still being very effective, and... I don't really know what to make of it. It's not like he's 30, but 24, I guess it's just a sign that sometimes you need to get more reps in. And you could make a case, maybe just so many young players lost seasons because of COVID where they would have been developing further. So maybe that's why we're seeing this uh, delayed leap from Troy Terry. I invested heavily in the Troy Terry hockey jersey. Nice. And Sam Steele. Troy Terry's baby. (laughs) All right. Uh, Okay, we're going to do some listener questions now. The first one is from Beach Life for me. Beach Life wants to know, will the Bruins be buyers or sellers in the near future? 
So I, I I remember us kind of wondering the same thing at the start of the season, um, and I always talk about this team's a team's arc, where it's like you know you're you're building, then you reach a critical mass of good young players, you start to contend, you become a contender, you maybe win a championship, you're good for a little while longer, your guys get older, then you start to be in denial, but you're still decent, and then you eventually start missing the playoffs. So mm-hmm. to me, the Bruins are in that window now where they're still they're kind of like Washington two years ago or Pittsburgh three years ago, where they're still a very competitive team, obviously with bad Marshall. Sean's still playing such good hockey. Patrice Bergeron, you still have Charlie McAvoy signed long-term. David Pasternak, the list goes on. Still a very talented team. Mm. And you've signed Taylor Hall long-term. So obviously you're committing to winning now still. Uh, But I don't know if we can call Boston for sure an elite team anymore. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a little bit of a regression this year. Because the prospect cupboard, right? It's When a team is so good for so long, I always say that. You're a victim of your own success. It's pretty bare. The mm. Bruins don't have major help coming. Mm. Obviously, they did. David Pasternak was their last like can't miss prospect. Jeremy Swayman is really promising. Charlie McAvoy, I should say as well. But if you look at their top guys now, Johnny Beecher still in school. Yeah. Uh, Jack Stanika, it keeps keeps getting that chance to be the guy, but it's just it's mm. just not happening. I keep waiting for it, and it hasn't happened so far. So who's coming down the pipeline to replace? You know, Patrice Bergeron. It's the last year of his contract, right? You only have two guys left in the 2011 Cup team. So I don't know if there are really bankable reinforcements on the way. And to me, that says you could start to see Boston slip. Maybe by next year, they're a wildcard team. Maybe two years from now, they're slipping out of it and they're going into the denial phase. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I think... I'm not going to say buyers or sellers in the near, near future. I think still more likely to be a buyer, actually, this year. Because I still think the team believes it's a contender. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And I think long-term, what the Bruins need to look for is that that next number one center. They don't really have one in the pipeline. Um, they've got some interesting reinforcements coming, but they're all more, they're very Bruins-esque prospects. You know, guys like Jakob Lauko and Oscar Steen that, um, you know, are going to sort of go full bore and they're going to hit and they're going to grind. Um the one top-end guy that's really interesting is Fabian Lysel, who is super fast, super skilled. You know, he's developing right now with the Vancouver Giants in the WHL. He's off to a good start there. You know, that's the sort of player that, you know, I, I would say Boston probably is the best culture in the NHL in terms of folding in youngsters and, and getting them on the same page uh, as the veterans and having the veterans support them. And of course, guys like Bergeron and Marchand are crucial to that. If Lysel can get onto that roster, or at least be around that roster in the next couple of years, then I think he could be, you know, quite the game breaker for them. But he's not a center. So long term, I think what you're going to see is, yeah, Boston's going to hang around for a couple of years, but then they're going to have to make that decision where they say, okay, do we need to deal one of our guys for a first rounder and at the same time like maybe we hope that we get a good pick early on and we can get that center of the future uh because as you mentioned you know jack stadnika it's kind of looking like at best he'll be a middle six guy right mm-hmm. now um so there there is going to be a hole there once patrice bergeron retires now does that happen in three years does it happen in five years who's to say i mean bergeron has had a hall of fame career uh also one that you know early on is marked by injury what does that mean for his durability again who's to say but that would be for me the number one long-term goal because as you mentioned you know McAvoy is still very young Swayman looks like you know he could be your goalie of the future slash 
very near present, mm -hmm. uh, but they're, they're going to need to somehow find a number one center eventually. Mm -hmm. Vancouver Giants, shout out to my boy Michael Buble. That's his team. There you go. All right, next question comes from Kui Chi, longtime listener, Kui Chi. Do the Montreal Canadiens need a franchise restart? Um, I think it's too late for that. If you look at the money that Mark Bergevin has handed out, you have long-term deals for Jeff Petrie, Brendan Gallagher, Tyler, Tyler Toffoli, Josh Anderson, Mike Hoffman, David Savard. Mm. They're all locked up for a long time. So there's kind of no turning back. And you do have young players to build around. You have Nick Suzuki, you have Cole Caulfield, you have Alexander Romanov. So you're okay there on paper. The weird thing is just you're not getting results. I do think the Habs are a little bit star-crossed to start this year. Obviously, you lose Shea Weber and you have no carry price. You know, they are not necessarily going to be contender again because, as we've said, they were the 18th best team in the league last year. Yeah. But they're not as bad as the record has shown so far either. Uh, and I genuinely believe, like, there's just so much money tied up for so many years that you really just have to roll with what you have right now. So I don't think the time is uh, now for a restart. If you were going to restart the Habs, you would have had to do it a couple years ago before you handed out all these fresh. Like the Josh Anderson deal is, is pretty new. The Toffoli deal, that's, those are from last year. You have the Hoffman deal's new, Savard deal's new, Gallagher extension, relatively new. It's all just getting started with the term on these contracts. So you're kind of stuck. Yeah, I would agree. And you know the problem in Montreal is that it's almost like they feel they can't be bad for well at all um whereas most teams go through ups and downs and i i feel like they need to just accept that they'll be in the trough for like three four seasons and you know in that time you can make sure that cole caulfield develops properly you can make sure that alexander romanoff develops properly you know you can support nick suzuki you can fold in uh, the next generation of defensemen, whether it's Jaden Struble or Jordan Harris or Matthias Norlinder, you know, guys like that that are, uh, I mean, Struble and Harris are still in school, uh, but, you know, they'll be coming soon. As long as you can do that and accept that you're not going to be a playoff team, uh, and then, you know, maybe you deal Mike Hoffman at the deadline for somebody who needs some power play scoring or, or something like that. But, yeah, I mean, the contracts are just too prohibitive to dish off. You you really don't have a lot of recourse when it comes to Price or Weber. And, you know, you don't really want to deal with them retiring because of the cap implications. Uh, so all you can really hope for is that they get healthy and contribute, you know, as best they can in the coming years. But honestly, they just have to be bad for like three, four seasons. And they have to accept that they're going to be bad mm -hmm. for three, four seasons. And I think they're in a tough spot because they have so many veterans that it's going to be hard to be bad. Like, I don't know. I think they're going to be in the murky middle. But they're doing a great job yeah, so far. Yeah, they're doing a great job so far. <laughs> yes, that's true. I, I think the one path that could bring about significant change is a carry Price trade. Because if you mm. look at the expensive veteran group, he's the one guy that obviously would have juice for a trade. Right. And I think you could explore something that maybe sends him out west, closer to home, especially with the mental health problems. That Again, we don't know exactly what he's gone through, but with what he's gone through, maybe he would like to be closer to home. Mm. So again, like if you're Edmonton, do you try to work out something, right? Go, go to a contender that's at West and Montreal would have to get some kind of significant return, of course. But uh, to me, that's the one player in terms of the veteran guys that would have the juice uh, where a team would be willing to pay up, even mm. though he has term left. Next question is from Sutton and then bracket Steve Eiserman's burner. All right. That's funny. Uh, I've been told before by agents or GMs that there are a lot of GMs that have burner accounts on Twitter. Oh, for sure. Stuff. Yeah, FYI. Be careful what you say. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Sutton wants to know, who is winning the Calder 
who's winning the call there, Moritz Sider or Lucas Raymond? So obviously it's a presumptuous question, yeah. but hey, it's going great in Detroit with those two right now, Same. as we expected it would. It's not yeah. like this is a surprise. We were big on both these guys. Um, it's hard to say. I, I think Moritz Sider has a bigger impact on the game because he's such a horse. As Again, I'm going to keep patting on backs because we've been calling this. This is not a surprise. We've been calling him to be an absolute horse for the last couple of years. So he's playing 22-39 a game. And if he continues to have that level of impact all around the ice, I do think you're going to see him win the Calder. That said, if Lucas Raymond keeps up his scoring pace, then he's going to be scoring at the rate of like an Evgeny Malkin or Matt Barzell rookie season, 80 plus points. Mm. And if he does that all year, it's going to be hard to not give him the Calder. Yeah, I would agree. I think that typically how a Calder race works is if the scoring race is close, then a defenseman can certainly put themselves in a position to win it, especially if that defenseman has pretty good offensive numbers themselves. Because if you look at ice time, you know, defensemen just tend to stand out more. Insider is certainly uh, playing his fair share of minutes already. But, it, it, you know, if Raymond happens to win the rookie scoring race by like 10, 15 points, then I think just those raw numbers are going to push voters towards him. And rightly so. I mean, if he's having that big an impact, you know, on Detroit's top line, then, I mean, how much more can you ask? For sure. Okay, we're going to finish it off with the rapid-fire game. Ryan, you are up as the host. All right. I guess I'm ready. Let's do this. Okay, since I am caught up on uh, Season 2 of Succession, I haven't started Season 3 yet, but I know you're watching because you told me to watch it. Who is your favorite Roy Child? Roy Child legally, so actual Roy Blood. I yes, think, Roy I think, Blood. I think Shiv, uh, in terms of who am I, who I'm entrusting to run the company. So mm. I think Shiv is the most capable, the smartest. I don't think it's coincidence that her nickname is Shiv because she's sharp. I think that's a metaphor. Mm. My favorite character, though, is Tom because he's so tragic <laughs> yes. and awkward and he's hilarious to watch. Great acting by Matthew McFadden, who's yeah. a Brit. Great accent hider. So is Shiv, Sarah Snook. Yeah. Or she's Australian. Another great accent hider. But I think... To me, he's the most interesting character because he's so multi-layered. He's so duplicitous. Depending mm-hmm. on whoever he's in a scene with, he'll completely change the way he behaves. Good point. Right? Yeah. All right. Uh, I am uh, Team Roman all the way because Roman is so hilarious. And I almost feel like in the early episodes, they made him do scummy things just so you didn't cheer for him too much because he is so funny. Uh, but also shout out to Connor because he's so oblivious. I find him hilarious. <laughs> yes, he is. He's awesome. And uh, yeah, I, I just enjoy how out there he is. Okay, second question, sticking with pop culture. What's your favorite Radiohead song of all time? Hmm, that's a tough one. I have a lot of favorites. Um, I really like High and Dry. And I've always wondered if it's if is it about a daredevil? I've no. I think idea. it's my theory is that it's about like an evil Knievel type of daredevil. If you listen to the lyrics, hmm. but I'm not totally sure. Gotcha. Uh, I'm gonna say high and dry or flate fake plastic trees would be my maybe my two favorite. There's so many good ones. Creeps good too, and Karma Police. But hmm. if I have to pick one, no, I'm gonna say flate fake plastic trees is my favorite. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna go with Karma Police. I happened to hear it on the radio the other day. Fantastic video. Uh, Jonathan Glazer, if I'm not mistaken, that went on to direct Sexy Beast. Uh, I would go Karma Police, and I would also throw in Just, uh, just because I like the guitar work in that one. But seems like we're the same era of Radiohead, so very nice there. Okay, on to hockey. If you could straighten out the AHL affiliations and you know make things work, would you be in favor of relegation in NHL hockey? 
So relegating teams to the AHL? Uh, yeah. So obviously you would have to sever NHL teams from AHL teams because otherwise you would basically just be changing uniforms. But would you be in favor of relegation where, let's say, there's only 18 teams that are allowed to go for the Stanley Cup? Yeah, I think it would be pretty fun. I think rele- relegation is just a dramatic and exciting plot line. What I wonder, it's funny where my brain goes from like, I think of from a work perspective, like if you're a beat writer and your team gets relegated, do you get a pay cut? Like, do you have to earn AHL money because yeah. people aren't going to care about your work as much? I don't yeah. know. That would be kind of scary. But overall, I mean, Trent, like, like Trent Krim and in, in, uh, Ted Lasso, does he get less money in season two when they're, well, spoiler alert, relegated? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think yes. I, I just I just think relegation is fun and funny, and in my fantasy baseball league, I won it three years in a row, and I I made it. I created a fake article talking about the other fifteen teams being relegated to nice. their own league because they can't keep up with me, baby. There you go. Uh, I would totally love to see it happen. Uh, again, it's hard to. I mean, they do it so much in Europe and in other sports as well, and. It's hard to picture because of the way hockey is structured and, you know, you have the draft and how would that work. Um, but I would love to see it. Part of my, you know, when I was thinking about this last night, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be hilarious if like the bottom two NHL teams got sent to the KHL <laughs> and like the top two KHL teams went to the NHL. But the travel would be a nightmare, be awesome, uh, especially man. if somebody like, you know, Avangard Omsk you know, won the KHL, then you have to, like, it's not like Moscow or like even like Jokerit, which is in Finland, which is like at least kind of yeah. near, you know, the Atlantic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's obviously prohibitive. But. Do, 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 like, have like a mini tournament where it's like the worst NHL team and like... The best the, KHL the, team? The best NHL team. And then if a KHL team wants to enter, the best one moves on. Maybe. Yeah. So, I mean, travel would be a nightmare, but I would love to see that because that would be hilarious. Okay. Next question. What's the best barbecue you've ever eaten? Ooh, okay. I'm going to say two. Mm-hmm. Um, Hattie B's Hot Chicken in Nashville. That's not barbecue. I think I, say, <laughs> I, I call that barbecue. I do call it barbecue. I, I know you're going to say that. I do think yeah. it's barbecue. It's Southern cooking. Yeah. The way the food is cooked, it's got all the properties of barbecue. So I, I Except the barbecue part. <laughs> no, I'm going to disagree with you. I think it's, it falls under the umbrella of barbecue. All right. Uh, what about Pappy Smokehouse? Is that barbecue? Is that barbecue enough for you? It's barbecue. It's yeah. Okay. Pappy yeah, Smokehouse. It's barbecue. Pappy Smokehouse in St. Louis is my nice. official answer. Nice. It's fantastic. The ribs are amazing. Yep. The beans. We went there during the All Star Game. The burnt ends. Burnt ends. The burnt the ends was, was an absolute show stealer. Hundred yep. um, percent. So I'll say Pappy Smokehouse on nice. a technicality. Uh, it probably would get my vote either way. Like it's close. Yeah. This is I, an amazing hill to die on. This is like me asking you your favorite kind of soup, and you'd be like bread. <laughs> no way. But anyway, it's hot chicken. Yeah, it's deep fried. It's not barbecued. It's yeah. Anyways, I'm all out right. Here. I cast me aside for not knowing what barbecue is. Okay, so yeah, Papu's in St. Louis is very good. Uh, my top two, because I'm going to go different meats here, uh, for br- beef brisket, Pecan Lodge in Dallas. I called it Pecan Lodge, and the taxi dispatcher didn't know what I was talking about. So Pecan Lodge, uh, totally worth uh, I showed up before the place even opened because you have to. Uh, but luckily, I was still on Eastern Standard Time, so eating early was great with the time zone. My best pork barbecue and this is a sleeper but i went to a place in tampa bay called conan's and i had a rib sandwich there that was mind-blowing it was a mustard-based sauce it was incredible highly recommend it uh so those are my two favorites but i'm a huge barbecue fan next question if you could change 
the uniform of any NHL team besides the Blackhawks, which one would you change? Anaheim Ducks times 1,000. I hate their uniforms. They're hideous. That stupid duck that's a D or a foot. Just absolutely. I'm trying not to swear. Steven disagrees. I'm trying not to swear right now. Those those wow. those uniforms are effing trash, favorite. man. Wow. They're absolute trash. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm like Joe Pesci in Home Alone at this when he shot Goodfellas the same year. He's trying not to swear. That's how... That's how how bad I think those Ducks uniforms are. Especially when you're sitting on some awesome Ducks uniforms with the purple scheme and the wild wing and all that stuff. Those unis were awesome. Ooh. Go back to those. Get rid of the lame orange m- the murky D. D. It's garbage. Wow. Garbage. Bring in the thunder. I like it. I'm actually going to go with the Carolina Hurricanes. I'll, I would say weather patterns are a really tough mascot. You know, whether you're the storm or the hurricanes or the cyclones, it's really difficult. Um, I, I don't mind the, the hurricane flag that they use, mm-hmm. but I just, I need something else. I don't know if, you, if there's a big C you can go with or if there's some kind of lettering, but uh, for a team that is so good now, mm-hmm. I just feel like the uniforms are... Could use a step up. Ooh. Final question. Yeah, Steven, you're, you're just like losing. Peanut cutter. Really? Wow. Things we learned in this episode. That's I don't right. know what barbecue is, and Steven has horrible jersey taste. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Final question. When you're driving, how much of a honker are you? Oh, I'm a really strategic honker. I think, you know what? I'm the best honker I know. Ooh. My daughter asked me about it. She's like, Dad, why don't you use this horn? Or why do you use the horn? I'm a defensive driver. I always got my horn, my hand ready on the horn for the mm. sake of warning people. I'm not a retaliatory honker. Mm. I'm not an F you, why did you cut me off? I'm right. a honk while it's happening. Hey, watch out, I'm here. Mm. Or or beep beep, you're, it's a green light and you're clearly texting the car in front of me. Mm-hmm. So I'm the best honker I know. Interesting. I would say I'm a pretty conservative honker. I don't like to honk much, but I will say... If uh, if you're in a in a luxury car, I will definitely honk at you. Like I honked at a Lexus that was like, you know, not going on a green this morning. Uh, so if you're in a nice car, I'm definitely honking at you. I'm also not going to let you in on the highway if you try to pull the last second maneuver. Ben's got to wait. That's what I say. That's the end of Rapid Fire. Thanks for playing. All right. Good Rapid Fire. Long Rapid Fire. But who cares? Rapid Fire is fun. Right? Am I right? Am I right? Okay, well, that concludes this week's episode. We'll be back next week. The Hockey News Fantasy Podcast is returning this week. And Prospect Podcast, is it coming down the pipe soon? We will ask Steven. Okay. All right. Steven says yes. Good stuff. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening.